Uh, okay, Aladdin. Have you guys seen Aladdin? Sorry, rough transition. That's all right. Aladdin. You know the, the magical lamp? I'm talking about Robin Williams' Aladdin, okay? We're going old school. I grew up on that movie. Don't know how it was my favorite movie as a kid because it's terrifying. It, it scares me as an adult, but as a kid, that was my favorite movie. Do we remember the concept of the genie, right, in the lamp? Yeah, pretty compelling idea that I run across this magic lamp that holds a cosmic, all-powerful, wish-granting spirit, and I can summon it and get out of it whatever I want. That's a pretty compelling idea, and we like to run with that, right? We get three wishes. One of those cannot be infinite wishes. You cannot use one of your three wishes to wish for infinite wishes, but if you know the comedian James A. Castor, then you know that he's got a workaround, infinite genies. Didn't see that coming, did you? Um, it's a compelling idea, but it's not reality. Like, we can fantasize about that all we want. What would I use my three wishes for? What would you use your three wishes for? Not infinite wishes or infinite genies. Just think about it for a second. What would you use those wishes for? To tie it into reality a little bit, just think, what do I try to accomplish and achieve in my life? What, what are we working towards? What motivates me? Why do I work? Why do I clock in and out? Why do I run the business I run? Why do I work at the school that I work at? Why? What are we trying to get out of our work? Money? Security, identity in a career, even think outside of work, just think in general life. What are we trying to get out of life? Better health, kids, maybe a vacation or just a good night's sleep. Please, can I get a good night's sleep? How about a, a trustworthy government? a stable economy, maybe a solid few years without a global catastrophe or mass shooting. Another way to think about this is what do we most want? What do we most need? We're getting deep real quick this morning. What do we most want and need? And whatever the answer, don't stop there. Ask why. Because your answer is probably not bad. Wanting kids, wanting security, wanting a stable financial position, those things are not bad. Wanting a good career, not bad. Why? Why do you want those things? What would you use your three wishes for? And what would you get if you actually got those things? What would, you, what would that accomplish for you? Jesus warns that it is possible for us to gain the whole world and lose our soul. That's a terrifying warning. Because there's something that we were all designed to want and need. Something 
deeper than what's on the surface, deeper than a vacation, deeper than the stock markets. We were all designed for our souls to be restored. We were all made complete and whole and right. And at some point in our history, we were broken. And now we're longing to go back to that. We're longing to be fulfilled and satisfied and restored. We're longing to be made complete. Our biggest need in life is to be saved and sanctified. So we'll turn to Exodus 31. Are you surprised that I'm preaching Joshua and referring to Exodus? You shouldn't be. Exodus 31. That was a joke, guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) I went too deep and then too unserious. Our biggest need in life is to be saved and sanctified. And this is not outside of God's knowledge. And it's also not outside of his action. Because he's made a way for us to know where our satisfaction, our salvation, and our sanctification comes from. Just real quick, I'm going to be using this word a lot. Sanctification is our set-apartness, our wholeness, our completeness. It's being fully who we are in Christ. That's sanctification. We were designed for sanctification. Okay, I'll come back to that a few times. Exodus 31, verse 13. This is what God gives us. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. This is a pattern of rest, a weekly pattern of rest. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations so that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. If we are deeply longing for sanctification, we must know that we can only find it in God because we will constantly be turning somewhere else. Now, Sabbath as a weekly pattern of rest, a weekly pattern of reminding ourselves where our sanctification comes from. It's it's not just physical rest. It's also spiritual rest. It's a restoration of our souls and our bodies. And I'll get to practical bits later, hopefully try to offer you some help, but Alabaster Creative puts it simply like this. On Sabbath, we recall that God is our center. We are designed to rest and that goodness happens even when we do not labor for it. Wow. I'm going to say that part again. Goodness happens even when we do not labor for it. When we do not labor for it. Remember, in Joshua, we've said that it's part of the Hebrew um, category of the prophets. The organization of the Hebrew Bible uh, is a little bit different than our organization. And in Joshua, we find the first book of the prophets. And because it's the first book of the prophets, it stands on what comes before. And so it stands on Genesis through Deuteronomy, also known as the Torah. But it also points ahead and colors everything that we'll read after Joshua. And so Joshua's in a special place. While we read Joshua, we must consider what things are being repeated and what kind of detail are we given that reminds us of what comes before. 
So what in Joshua 6 do we see that reminds us of the Torah? Okay, we see a couple of things. There's actually a lot. We could, we could spend months or years just breaking down the first 12 chapters of Joshua. In Joshua 6, a couple of things that we see repeated. We see the word priest and ark repeated a few times. And this recalls Leviticus. It recalls Exodus and reminds us the purpose of the priests and the purpose of the ark. The ark was meant to um, carry forth God's presence. It was a symbol of God's presence with his people. But the role of the priest was actually to carry the ark. God could have moved the ark on his own. He actually existed in Exodus as a cloud of smoke and at nighttime a pillar of fire. He could have moved the ark on his own so that we would know God is with us. But he chose to use people as a way to say our design is to carry forth the presence of God in all creation. The design of humanity, only humanity, is to carry forth the presence of God through all creation. We should find joy and encouragement. This should lead us to worship because God in his grace chose his people to carry forth his presence into the world, to build his kingdom. He chose you as his child, not to sit on the sidelines and watch him, even though sometimes that would be easier and less painful. He chose his people to join him. He calls us to pick up his presence and carry it forth into the world. And this is a good thing. It's hard, but it is good. C.S. Lewis uh, says of Aslan, the Jesus figure in his book, in uh, Chronicles of Narnia, he says, he is not safe, but he is good. Our carrying forth the presence of God is a participation in what he's doing. Not because we're worthy, because God doesn't need us, but because we are loved. We're his children. Okay, the second thing, so we see the repetition and the detail of the priests and the ark. We also see how God chooses to use his people to carry forth his presence. And so we see this repetition a couple times of marching around the city of Jericho. And so for six days, the people of God do something, and then we see the seventh day, the six days culminate into a seventh day where they do something special and different. Six days culminating into a seventh day. Does that remind you of Genesis 1 and 2, of creation? For six days, God created the earth. The Spirit hovered over the waters like Israel encircled Jericho, and on the seventh day, God rested from his work. But in Joshua, on the seventh day, God destroyed. And so we see this reversal of Genesis 1 and 2, an, an anti-creation, that six days, Israel does a little bit, and they rest mostly. They weren't allowed to talk. They march around once and go sit down and be quiet. Six days of Sabbath, and on a seventh day, destruction. An anti-creation event. And this is not new. God reverses creation a few times in Scripture. 
We see in Genesis 1 that God brings the land up out of the water, and from the land we get life. But in Genesis 6, in the story of Noah's Ark, we see that God covers the land with water and destroys sinful life. There's a, a repetition and a pattern of the destruction of sin, the destruction of life, because it's broken. In Genesis 1, Adam and Eve are living as they were created to live. Humanity created in its design, fully sanctified. Their fullness is in God alone, resting in him. They're sanctified. Before sin and rebellion ever enter the picture, let's read Genesis 2. The first three verses of Genesis 2. God had just finished creating all the way at the beginning, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from his work that he had done in creation. There's a repetition of God finished and then he rested. And I want to point out to you that only in Genesis 2 do we ever see work finished until we get all the way back into Revelation when God finishes work again. So before we start thinking, I'll rest when I'm done with work. You'll never be done. There's always more. Only God finishes work, okay? Just a, a little, little thing I had to point out there. But we also notice that God models the rhythms that he then gives to us. God finishes work, and then he rested. Six days, God created the seventh day he Sabbathed, and then he makes that day holy and calls us into Sabbath. Exodus, the next book after Genesis, is repetitive of Sabbath, and not just like the end of the week Sabbath, but also a few months go by, let's Sabbath like for a whole week, and then a few years go by, you know, we're going to take a year off. God is intentional to give us rhythms of work and rest because that's how we were designed. We were designed for work and rest. Both. Rest without work is unnatural. Work without rest is unholy. I'm going to say that again. Rest without work is unnatural. We should be working. But work without rest is unholy. We should be resting. Because we either worship rest and we, we make our lives about finding satisfaction and completion and leisure and pleasure and comfort, or we worship work and find our fulfillment in what we do. Maybe not our careers, probably, maybe not, but also work in other ways. We find our identity and our completion and our rightness in what we do. We find who we are 
in what we do. And I want to let this settle in for a second. Let's think back. What do I most want? What do I most need? If I had that genie. You're probably not going to run into a magical lamp with a genie inside. Let's just clear that up. But in case you do, let's think about that. What do you most want and need? I bring this up again because it is possible. It is possible for us to confess and to know with our heads that only God satisfies while our lives and our actions communicate something very different, that we find satisfaction in what we do or the things that we're working for. It is possible for us to believe something and live differently. We have to know that. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. We're given at the very beginning um, the object of Joshua 6. We could think that it's the city of Jericho. Jericho epitomized human sinfulness. Jericho epitomized Genesis 3 because after God rests and then he hangs out with his creation and the people that he created, they, they reject him. Joshua 6 brings us to Jericho where Jericho is the, the case study of sin running rampant in human life to its fullest extent. Now, I want to tell you though that the fundamental sin that Jericho commits is a rejection of God. They do terrible things, sacrificing children, doing even more brutal things to other people. But the fundamental sin that they commit is a rejection of God because we learned in Joshua 2 when uh, the spies found Rahab and she kept them safe and hid them, we learned that, that Rahab then says, We've all known what your God has done for you. It's made it all through the land, all through Canaan, all of the land that Israel was sent to occupy. But more specifically in Jericho, all of Jericho has heard of the goodness of God and his faithfulness to his people. And what have they done? The entire city, except for Rahab, has decided and chosen to reject God completely. And so they're shut up None go in, none go out. They're imprisoned in their own sinfulness that has led them to fear God. And not a, a right kind of fear, but terror. I, I, wanna, I don't want us to move too quickly past Jericho either because um, we can just on the surface judge those people in Jericho and say, yeah, those guys are real bad. Sacrificing children, ancient pagans. We can put them on the other side of the field, say they're the enemies, they're the bad guys, and forget that we have sin in us as well. It's tempting and natural to, to pit one another, to pit ourselves against other people. 
but we were all designed to find our wholeness and our completeness. We're all designed to be sanctified in God, but we all turn everywhere else to find wholeness and completion. We're all rebellious and sinful. We all choose the second way to go the way of our own desires. We think that we ourselves are good enough at finding what truly satisfies and completes us. And it's way more subtle than we think. Remember, we can confess that God alone satisfies, but our lives look different. So we have to look at our lives and our hearts. We can use relationships to find satisfaction. We can use our jobs. We can use our studies, our accomplishments. We can use our kids, our family. We can use um, busyness because maybe we feel like we can't find satisfaction, so we distract ourselves because that's the next best option. We can even use the to-do list and facade of religion to satisfy our souls. We are just like Jericho. At our most core broken nature, we are just like Jericho. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back. Let's read Joshua 6, verses 3 through 5. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city at once. So this is God's instruction to Israel from what Zach read earlier. Zach read what happened. We're reading God telling Joshua what to do. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will go down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. One other thing real quick. Did you notice the repetition of the number seven? We'll come back to that. But in Joshua 3 through 5, we see this encircling, this hovering around the city of Jericho. Just like God hovered over creation in Genesis 1. We see the seventh day in Genesis that God rests. And on the seventh day in Joshua, God destroys. And we're reminded that in order for life to exist, God must destroy sin and death. Uh, one commentator, C.F. Kiel, 19th century German theologian, um, not a household name, but he says, he, he kind of looks at all of the scriptures and says, realizes the pattern that God works in. He says this, when the Lord comes to found, to build up, and to perfect his kingdom upon earth, he also comes to overthrow and destroy the worldly power which opposes his kingdom. And so now we remember we are just like Jericho. We have our own disposition to distrust God, to reject him completely, to go our own way to find wholeness and completeness and sanctification. 
And what is true is that our sin requires destruction. And so like Joshua points back to what's true in the Torah, it's also the first book of the prophets, it points back to the Torah, but as a prophet, it points forward to what's true. And it links the whole Bible together because it points us to Jesus. It points us to the death and resurrection of Christ, saying to us that we don't have to be like Jericho. We get to be like Rahab. We get to look on the mighty deeds of God and wonder, does he have mercy for me? Does he have compassion for my sinful nature? Would he be so gracious to save me from the destruction of my sin? And Jesus says, yes. He says, come to me and you'll find rest. We have an opportunity to repent of finding our satisfaction and our sanctification in everything but God. Jesus gives us an opportunity to repent because on the cross, he destroyed our sin. He destroyed the end of our life in sin, the penalty, death. That's not our our future reality anymore. And all we have to do is say yes. All we have to do is trust him and follow him. But first, we must repent. We must turn from our finding satisfaction and pleasure and sanctification and wholeness in everything else and turn towards Jesus and trust in him alone. Like Rahab put the red cord out of her window on the day of battle in order to be saved, so does Jesus offer his blood to us that we may look upon him on the cross bearing the punishment, taking our place on the day of our judgment. He takes our place, he heals our sinful nature, and he welcomes us into his newness of life. Because the end of the story was not that he died on the cross, because he was raised. He was raised from the dead into new life, sinless in his death, sinless in his resurrection, unbroken. And he offers us that same resurrection to find wholeness and righteousness through the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. What a gift. What a gift that we were offered a way out of being Jericho. Jesus became Jericho for us. What a gift that the Holy Spirit would point to us our disposition to sin, our disposition to reject God and go our own way. What a gift. It's hard and it's heavy, but it's a grace. It is mercy because we have an opportunity to turn from it to Jesus. It would not be grace and mercy if we didn't have Jesus. We would be condemned without him. We would be Jericho, destroyed with our sin. But we don't have that outcome. We get rest. Sabbath is a physical outworking of repentance. It's a weekly practice, a weekly confession 
finding sanctification and salvation in God alone. Remember, Genesis 1 and 2, that all of creation culminates in the Sabbath. It culminates in God resting. Sabbath was designed for us to be rooted in our truest spiritual reality that God makes us complete and whole. Sabbath grounds us in the true way of living, the way of Jesus. The way to live within our Genesis 1 design. The way to live within our God-given identity as God's children. Now, I have to be honest, because I don't hide very well. I'm not good at, at lying and hiding makes me more comfortable to confess even that I feel a lot of insecurity preaching on the Sabbath because I'm not an expert in it. Like this whole practice what you preach thing is a real deal. And so I'm like, man, I went 11 years or more as a Christian and had no idea that what the Sabbath was for, never practiced it. So if you find yourself there, that's okay but I also feel a lot of shame because I have that natural disposition to use things in my life, especially my work, to find satisfaction and completion and wholeness. And so the only thing I can do then to not be crushed by that guilt and shame and use that as a motivator is just give it to Jesus and trust. You, let the Sabbath remind me to trust that he will be gracious to me that he will forgive me, that he has forgiven me. For the last couple of years, um, Kendall and I have tried to practice Sabbath. It's, it's, a, it's a practice. Um, and practice is a tricky word because we say practice makes perfect, but that's not true. Practice makes permanent. Because if you practice something imperfectly, you're not going to get better. Practice as a spiritual discipline, time and repetition in practice just means that we're giving it consistent try. We're trusting in the process. And so when we practice a spiritual discipline of Sabbath, we're not shooting for this goal to nail it and get it perfect. Maybe someday in my future I'll get Sabbath perfect. You probably never will. But Kendall and I, for the last couple years, we set aside Fridays as our Sabbath. This is a day where um, probably once out of every two or three months, we'll, we'll get a good day in. Not perfect. We'll get a good Sabbath in, and we'll stay in our pajamas all day. We'll um, watch some baseball in the summers if, if it's uh, on in the afternoons and we can get it. Um, we sing. We pray. We take naps sometimes. Um, we read, we, we, we just, the focus of our time is to be with one another, be with our kids, ultimately to be with God. Let our time be shaped by presence. Um, we go get donuts. Yes, plural donuts. I like old-fashioned and maple-glazed donuts, all right? We don't get it perfect, but when we wake up on Saturday morning, whether we nailed it or we didn't, we wake up on Saturday morning, our bodies, our minds, our uh, souls 
have been restored by God. It's a gift. Sabbath is a gift. So I have three uh, small things that I want to share with you that I've learned. Um, they're not like follow this list and you're, this is your three-step guide to Sabbath because Sabbath is individual. Our Fridays are going to look different than your Saturdays or Sundays, and that's good. Every, every uh, family is different. Every person is different. The first thing I want to share with you is that Sabbath is not another rule to follow. It's not a rule. Jesus tells us that um, man was not made for the Sabbath. We don't serve Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. God gives us Sabbath in order to remind us. Sabbath itself cannot make you whole. It can only point you to the one who does. And that means that God will not love you more for practicing Sabbath, and he will not love you less if you don't, okay? The pressure's off. You're free. The second thing, so first, Sabbath is not another rule. The second thing is, Sabbath is not only a day for physical rest. It's not only a day to rest our bodies. It is, and that's important, but it is also for the rest of our souls, and to know that means that we have to engage our souls in rest. And where do our souls find rest but in God? And so we don't use the Sabbath to do absolutely nothing and be lazy. Sometimes that's important. Sometimes that's what Sabbath looks like. But we engage our souls with our creator to find our rest and our completion in him. And it doesn't have to be formal. It doesn't have to be this rigid thing. Remember, there's no rule. Just pick a day that you can turn off work, that you can put your phone on, do not disturb. Don't let your phone tell you who you are and what you do through the day. But even if you can't do that, that's okay. Take a piece of scripture and just meditate on it. Exodus 31, 13, great place to start. It's God who sanctifies you. Meditate on scripture and let it sink into your being. Take a single prayer. Was it, um, a couple weeks ago, we practiced the, the uh, breath prayer. God with me, God for me. God with me, God for me. Just take a single scripture, single prayer, and just meditate on that through the day. And remember that God is present with you. Every moment even every distraction, every nap, every meal, every song, every time you walk down the hall of your house is an opportunity to turn to Jesus and remember that he's with you and that he satisfies. Sabbath is not another rule. It's not only a day for rest for our bodies. It's also a day to rest our souls. And the third one, Sabbath takes time and repetition. I on purpose did not use the word practice because of the, the, the correlation we have with practice and perfection. It takes time and repetition. That means just keep going. Keep trying. You're going to fail at it. That's just part of who we are, part of how we do things. We fail. But learn and keep going. Try again. 
You weren't made to serve the Sabbath. Sabbath was made to serve you. So keep giving it repetition. You, you will probably never have like the perfect Sabbath, the ideal Sabbath. But if we, if we add pressure to ourselves to get it right and to get it perfect, and that we have to squeeze every ounce of goodness from it, then we are slaves to the Sabbath. And, and we're finding ourselves in the same position that Jesus um, said we weren't meant to live in. So not a rule. It's a day for our bodies and our souls. And it takes time and repetition. Remember, Sabbath reminds us that we cannot be saved and sanctified by anything but God, anyone but God. And the reason this is important, there's a lot of reasons for this to be important, but the reason that this is important is because when we are rooted in our design, when we are our true selves, we find completion and satisfaction and sanctification in Christ. Then we're able to live out of our mission to preach and live the gospel. We're able then to be obedient Christians because we're not serving our desires. We're serving God. We're able then to make disciples the point of church, the point of our salvation is to multiply. And we cannot do that if we're not finding satisfaction in God. And what kind of gospel is that? If we're not satisfied in the God we're calling people to, then why bother? To have an effective gospel, we must be rested and restored and sanctified and satisfied in God alone. Now, the sevens. I alluded to that earlier. The repetition of sevens. Joshua 6 uses the repetition of sevens to reiterate God's victory and judgment over sin. We're able to see clearly through Jesus that he has the final victory and judgment over sin in his death, his resurrection, and his return. There will be a day, we've been given a promise that one day Jesus will wipe out sin and death altogether. We long for that day, we wait for that day. And so we practice communion to remember that on the cross, Jesus dealt with sin. Jesus destroyed the punishment of sin. That whoever trusts in him doesn't have to be like Jericho. And because communion is a confession of our salvation in Christ, if you're not a Christian, we ask that you do not take communion with us this morning. And the Bible says that that's good for you to refrain. And so I'm going to ask that you would consider today's message, that you would consider Joshua 6, you would consider our collective human brokenness and sinfulness, and would you consider that God has given us his son Jesus as the only way to deal with our sin? And would you please consider trusting in Jesus alone, because there's not anything else that'll do it. And for the church, we take communion together. We remember and confess the death and resurrection of Christ, our salvation, 
until he comes again to destroy sin and death forever and bring us into eternal Sabbath. Holy Father, we bless you because you are good. We worship you because you have given us your Son. You've made a way for our hearts to be made right, for our souls to be restored. It's not anything that we can control or earn or do, but you just give us the free gift of Jesus. Would you teach us to find satisfaction in you alone? Would you help us to practice Sabbath as a physical confession of our need for you to restore us? God, would you make communion this morning sink deeper into our hearts that as we confess your goodness and your mercy and your salvation in your son that we also wait for him to come back and take us home God we love you we worship you we thank you with grateful hearts we sing to you